morning our scripture reading is taken from the book of Acts. So invite you to follow along with me this morning as we open the word of God. So this is from Acts 13, the first three verses, Acts 13, 1 to 3. I'll be reading from uh, English uh, ESV. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they, let, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The next passage is from Acts 17, 17, 26 to 27. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might fill their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. This is the word of God. Thank you so much, Eric. Well, let's take a look today at our third core value. We've been doing a series back to the basics after we took off the training wheels and we particularized as a church, like, what are we all about? What's kind of the core uh, of everything? And I, I remember a handful of years ago, Jill and I on uh, New Year's, you know, resolution wanting to do crunches, like 100 crunches a day. And we, you know, in, in typical fashion, it was great to talk about in theory, but hard to do in practice. So we maybe made it one day and then quit. After that, too, and in a core value like this is very similar. I think a lot, of, a lot of people, when you articulate it, say that sounds really great theoretically. Making it happen practically takes a tremendous amount of uh, effort and intentionality, a surrendering of preferences, and especially if you're in the majority culture, you're not accustomed to doing that. It all sounds great, but it's very hard to do, and yet. If, in fact, this is what God has called us to do, that's where he works the most beautiful stories of all, is in the hard things of life. We see that from the beginning. God has brought order out of chaos, even in Genesis chapter 1. And these scriptures that we read here refer to that. And I want to talk a little bit more about that being a core value for us today. You know, back in the late 80s when I became a follower of Christ, this was the 1980s, not the 1880s, for those of you who wonder... Um, I started, you know, listening to music. We all listened to music. And at the time, Michael W. Smith was really, really big. Friends are friends forever, right? That was one genre. But the other one I got pulled into was a little bit more of the Christian rock scene. And Petra 
was big in that day. And the album that had just been released, which I think was only in tape version, I don't think CDs even came out at the time, was This Means War. This means war! And I wasn't really a headbanger or anything, but that really drew me in. I really liked it. Now, my wife, when we got to know each other some years later, preferred Twyla Paris. I don't know if anybody remembers Twyla Paris. I know this is a very cultural reference as well, but she was kind of in the Sandy Patty vein in, in, in my mind too, and keyboard and uh, you know beautiful voice. And one of the songs that was really popularized at the time was how, how beautiful, you know, how beautiful is the body of Christ and the, the feet that bring good news. And she she wrote that song talking about the Lord's Supper, I mean, the actual body of Christ, but then the body that is grafted in. How beautiful all those who were called and respond to the good news of the gospel. And that beauty in the gospel, in my mind, is a little bit like a diamond. And you hold up a diamond and you can be captivated as the light shines at its different angles. And when you talk about the body of Christ and people who are different from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different traditions, in, in, in my, in, an image that comes to my mind is like that diamond shining brilliantly in some aspect that other cultures have missed. And there's a great beauty when the body of Christ is united together. It happens sometimes at like an Urbana conference or uh, something where the nations come together. And some of you know what that's like if you've ever been in the middle of a worship service where people from every tribe, nation, and tongue are singing together to the same God. Even if it's in a language you don't understand, there's something captivating, inexplicable, beautiful about that. There's a vision in Revelation chapter 7 of a worship service going on right now. We call ours together at 1030, but in eternity right now, there is a worship service going on. And the picture that we get of that is people from every nation, tribe, every people, every tongue, bowing down, worshiping the Lamb. So there is that sense of unity, but also diversity. They're still singing in a tongue that's expressive and maybe a way that is relevant to how they learned to worship and yet unified together worshiping the same God do we have to wait for heaven is the question to do that and I would argue that the answer is no and that even though it's very difficult that's part of the beauty of the journey and that's part of the the picture that's capable of drawing us who are already part of the family of Christ into the wonder of a story much bigger than us and a watching world to see that that can only happen because of Christ. And I want to invite us just to consider that a little bit. I mean, this, this, this core value for ours, frankly, is a bit unique. I mean, maybe not unique in the sense we're the only one, but if you talk about the core values we have already, Christ-centered, and community rich. My guess is that most churches in Mason, Cincinnati, Ohio, the United States, and probably throughout the world would say, yeah, we, could, we see that, we see that, and then you get to ethnically diverse. And it's like, what? You know, what? that is distinctive in some respects. But I want to tell you why we are pursuing that vision, why it's literally baked into our vision. We want to become a multi-ethnic church of influence, pursuing renewal on every level, right? Individual, family, city, and world renewal. And it's important at the end we say for the sake of the gospel. That's why we're doing it. 
kind of playing on that language, and I want to just cover three points real quickly with you about why we're pursuing this as part of our core values, and then unpack it a little bit in the book of Acts even beyond that. Uh, and the first, first reason that we want this to be core value is for the sake of the church. For the sake of the church, the big C church. And some of you are familiar with this terminology, uh, ecclesia. The ecclesia is the Greek word for the church, the called out ones, those who are called out. And we have a conviction that the church ought to strive to look like the community where God has placed it. It's very important. So when we say a core value of us is to be ethnically diverse, it's not because it's cool or because it, it's filling some political agenda. It's because for the sake of the church, and the church is the gathered people of God called out of darkness into light, into fellowship with each other and with God, the body of Christ. And so, an ecclesiological conviction, that's a fancy doctrinal word for what is the church. The church, the, your ecclesiology. It's, it's not just the brick buildings, it's people, living stones built together. It's those whom God has called into relationship with him, walking and worshiping with another, one another. And who is that? Who are the people who are to be gathering together, uh, corporate worship, and then scattering out throughout the week as hands and feet of Christ? It's those who are called in proximity to each other. You know, all of Paul's letters, the greatest church planter of all, are written to a location to the believers in Philippi, in Colossae, wherever it may be. Those who are gathered together, the demographics of that location is called to be the church. And we already read this passage, and some of you have heard me speak about this recently, even at the particularization service. I mean, Paul, when he enters into Athens after he's been called by the Lord to be his servant, and to preach the gospel not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. This is what he says there. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands or the place where they would live. So that's pretty amazing. That's a, a theology, a, a perspective on the movement of peoples automatically. God has appointed, if Paul is right, and we believe he is, he has appointed exactly where people should live. Wherever they inhabit, wherever you are, that's where you are supposed to be. So automatically, on the one hand, if you're like, God, why have you brought me here? Yeah, that's a good thing to say. God has brought you here. <laughs> you are here by no mistake, wherever you are. God has got you there. And he did that. He appointed not only where, but when you should live. I mean, for those of us who wish we could live on a farm back in Laura Ingalls' wilder days or something like that, I get it, you know, pre-social media. But you're here. God has put you in this place in this time for a purpose. What is that? Well, Paul gives the answer. He did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. That is why you live where you live, when you live, so that you can reach out and find God. And what's amazing, he says next, is though he's not far away from any one of us. 
Now, Paul builds out a theology later of general revelation. We can look and see that there's a God, but also special revelation. How can we know without hearing him proclaimed? Where is it? Who is it that has that calling to live out the gospel, to declare it wherever they are? It's the church, the ecclesia, the, the called out ones, those who are gathered together. You know, Mason, as you're probably aware, has changed demographically. In, uh, back in the late 90s when we first moved here, it was, I think, 2% non-white. And then the Mason City school system started shifting. And there was a plan, actually a 10-year plan by Mason City Schools. When we started Redeemer, I talked to the uh, assistant superintendent at the time. She was a follower of Jesus. I said, here's this crazy vision I have for a church that's trying to reflect the community where we actually are. And she said, good, because it's changing. Change is coming. Let's pray about it. And we prayed together about this very church. Years before it became, it became, even had a name. It was just Mason Church Project, question mark. We don't know what it's going to be called. And part of that journey along the way is we saw the shifting demographics so that in 2010, 20% of Mason City Schools was non-white, non-majority. And in 2020, 37% of Mason City Schools. It's like the United Nations when you go to a concert there in many respects. Many of them from Asian communities, first Indian, then Chinese in terms of numbers, but even more as well. God has made this shift happen. And our conviction is the reason he's done that is so people can reach out and find him. Where can they find God? I believe it's in the church. It's in the local body of believers. It's in those God has called out who are seeking to walk in his ways. That's, that's why we have it as a core value. You know, my, my mentor and, and former pastor, Walter Wood, used to say, you know, talk about our church being a home and a mission. A home and a mission. And he talked more about the mission side than home because we all like to be in home. It's not hard for us to want to feel like we're welcomed and we're invited and we're included and we're eating the food we like and the people we're around or people we really enjoy. That's kind of home. Most churches have that figured out. They have a hard time with the mission side. Go to people who aren't all of those things. That's hard. So he pounded mission all the time. For us, one of the reasons we have it in our vision statement and as a core value is because it's going to be very easy to be pulled into what's known as the homogenous unit principle, the HUP. Back in the church growth era in the 80s when these big mega churches were exploding, exploding, it was all about HUPs, homogenous unit principle. Meaning, the best way to grow something big is to get people who are the same together on board with it. Cincinnati Bengals. You know, let's find something we all like and you can build something big even if they're not that great. We're all, we're all around it, behind it. That was a big part of the church growth, growth movement in the United States of America, the HUP. When we look at the uh, ecclesiology and when we see what Christ has called us to, I call it the CUP, the Christ unit principle. <laughs> yeah, this is the glory cup, the CUP. 
That, that what unites us is Christ. And, and so we see it's not just for the sake of the church, but also for the sake of the gospel. And that's a pretty bold claim in many respects. But when I say we pursue this as a core value, it's baked into our vision for the sake of the gospel. The good news itself is that God has reconciled man to himself and man to each other. That is what the good news is all about. And it actually was a very ethnic issue from the beginning. First for the Jew, God had selected this, this nation, Israel, to say this is what it looks like to be in relationship with me. And even as far at the beginning when he called Abram, whose name he changed to Abraham in Genesis 12, he gave a hint there was more going on. You're going to be a blessing to all the nations. And so this, this church, the called out ones then, and, and the New Testament makes this very clear, that, the, that those who are Gentiles, if you're not Jewish, there's only two categories the Bible uses in terms of this ethnicity, Jew or Gentile. If you're not Jewish, you fit into the Gentile category. So we're all Gentiles unless you're Jewish. And it was a big stumbling block early in the church. Are Gentiles really included? If you are not Jewish, are you in? Can you be part of the ecclesia? It was a, a massive issue for them. And in fact, it became such, such, a, such an issue that they called all the leaders together in the early church and they had this council. And, you know, in our polity, we like to call it the General Assembly as Presbyterians. This was the first General Assembly in Acts chapter 15. There's an issue. They call everybody together to talk about it. And you, you read about this in Acts chapter 15. After much discussion, Peter, who was kind of known as the leader of the church, the biggest church for the Jewish uh, kind of cheering section, Peter got up and addressed them, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a, a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are the great leveling ground of the gospel is not only that we are all sinners saved by grace, that because of that, the gospel is accessible to all. And the proof of that reality is the inclusion of the Gentiles, an ethnic statement, into the body of Christ. How beautiful is the body. This is a gospel issue. Whenever anything ethnic creates a division. And so Paul and Peter argue throughout in all the New Testament, that this is an issue of whether the gospel is really true. Is it true? Is it real? Is the good news for everyone or only for those who are favored by God? And the early church, frankly, wrestled with that. And we kind of keep wrestling with it. And you want to go back to the early church? Hmm. Read the book of Corinthians, you might think differently. But sometimes we haven't made much progress, and we can't allow that to be. 
Because this isn't just an issue of the church and the gospel, but it's actually for the sake of the world. I mean, this is, this is bigger than just us who gather together on a Sunday morning instead of shopping at Walmart right now when the aisles are clear. This is also a core value for the sake of the world. Our conviction is that believers united under the banner of Christ in love signify that Christ is who he says he is, that Christ came for what he said he would come to do, that he actually did it, and that we are evidence of it. And here's, here's his words. Before he died and raised from the dead and then gave this mission to the church in general. This is, listen to Jesus' words. My prayer, he's praying to his Father, is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Who? Whose message? The disciples' message. Where, where are they gathered together? In churches, as we'll see in the book of Acts. Through their message. Christ is praying for us today who gather under his banner right here. And what does he pray? That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. That's remarkable. There is a Trinitarian fellowship. The unity and diversity within the Trinity. They're, they're the same God, three persons. This is what we are to look like even in the church to exhibit that kind of fellowship. And that kind of unity in diversity. May they also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The world will believe. Not people gathered in the church. The world will believe that Christ is who he says he is. And that he has been sent by God to do the work of the gospel. And to call out people to himself. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Then the world will know. And I, I tell you what, if the world looks at the church, what report do you think they're going to give, generally speaking? Do they look at the church and say, we know that Christ is who he said he was, that God has sent him? Sometimes, and there are real enemies, there are real enemies that we battle, but the opportunity that exists before us in a place where God has brought the nations together, and each one of them unique, and each one of them unique challenges when it comes to worshiping together as well, whether it's language or cultural history, or divides. I mean, the African-American story in the United States is very different than the Latino story in the United States. It's different than the immigrant coming from India in the United States. Is any one of them above the reach of the gospel? And we're a story too, me, majority. This is why it's one of our core values. Now, what I want to do with you is strap on for the ride. It's going to go quickly here too. I'm going to invite you to open up the book of Acts if you want to follow along. And I'm just going to zoom through Acts. Because Acts is all about the acts of the Holy Spirit through God's people. And it's all about this New Testament church and what it ought to look like. So if you look, for example, in Acts chapter 2, you know the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost. 
And you get this kind of foretaste of what's happening, and people are gathering for this big celebration, and you're familiar with Peter uh, addressing the crowd. And what I want to do as we go through this is just keep in mind which of these elements you think are being demonstrated. This kind of reality that the nations, not just one, but all the nations, that's what we mean by ethnically diverse, are, are coming together. And, and you get this hint of this being God's desire right there when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and Peter stands up and says, this is, this is happening. It was predicted a long time ago, and he quotes from the Old Testament. But some of you know what happens. They begin speaking in tongues that aren't their own. If I were to stand up here and start speaking, for example, in Indonesian, that would be alarming to Eric and Vera and interesting. And maybe I have a perfect dialect. and Perhaps they'd hear it in their own tongue or in uh, Mandarin. Or what other languages do we have here now, too? A Tamil. That would be kind of shocking, wouldn't it? Although my Tamil's not that bad, is it? I have three words down pretty good. This is, a, this is an indication that God's heart is for the nations as they gather together. And there were Jews from all kinds of different nations, but also God-fearers. And part of what Jesus said, and I already skipped Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where the Holy Spirit comes and says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Remember, they were gathered together. He said, here's your mission. Be my witnesses. Testify. And they're just gathered together in Jerusalem because they're scared. And they probably feel familiar with each other. And in, in the Bible, what tends to happen is it's God has to push us out of our comfort zones. Push. I'm not comfortable anymore. So he, he forces us out of our comfort zones. Because left to our own devices, we'll create very safe space. Very secure, safe, predictable, comfortable little pockets of communities that all love each other because nothing's wrong. And, and that happens here in Acts chapter 1. He says, you're supposed to go to the ends of the earth. And he just finds them huddled together. Then they have this day of Pentecost come. They hear some exposure to people speaking in tongues of every nation, every nation's. And then we skip forward to Acts chapter 6 now because the church is being established. In Acts chapter 6, you already see hints that there's some problems of understanding and applying the gospel because people who are widows of uh, one variety, you know, Greek-speaking widows versus Jewish or Hebraic widows, there was favorable treatment one over the other. Some people were being passed over. And that wasn't right. But already in the church, there were those issues. So they said, let's appoint some people who can manage this. And they do. And then in Acts chapter 9, Paul is the one who is... Uh, encounters Christ, and we talked about this uh, some as well. Actually, there's a persecution that's begun with Stephen in Acts chapter 8, and the church is starting to be scattered. And then in Acts chapter 9, Paul becomes a follower of Christ, and, and he's told, this man is my chosen instrument uh, to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then he starts planting churches. I mean, Paul is uniquely gifted to be able to do this. Uh, a man who knew the culture and the languages uh, and had the right gift mix to go out. And God calls him and sets him aside. That's Paul. Now, Peter, in Acts chapter 10, he has a vision. 
And this scroll comes down, and he sees different animals, and, and the spirit tells him, you know, kill and eat, but they're unclean animals. See, Israel prided itself in being distinct from the nations and not in, in following this dietary code. And here in this, this chapter, God's destroying that. And he's saying, no, I want you to eat some bacon today. Go to the buffet, the Ponderosa, and pile high all those bacon strips, as much as you can possibly eat. Forget about the cholesterol. Eat the bacon. And this is hard for him because he's been very prideful and, and, and honoring God. He says, I don't understand what you're doing here. Three times he has that vision, and he goes to Cornelius, a Gentile's house. And Cornelius tells about what God's been doing in his life. Look at chapter 10, verse, verse 20, 28. This is Peter saying, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. That was what the vision was about. No man is impure or unclean. And, and, then, and then skip down to... Of verse 34, Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news, the gospel of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And you know, Peter is starting to figure out the gospels for everyone he actually had a pretty hard time practicing that. You know, sometime later, Paul confronts him because he's not eating with the Gentiles anymore. So this is what I call a slow conversion for all of us. It's hard to put these things into practice. It's great to adopt them in theory. Unity and diversity, God is the God of everybody, let's gather together. It's hard to do once the food starts slinging out and you start measuring, hey, you got more than I did. Or you're, you're, you're tending to lean toward one way or another. And yet, it's for the sake of the gospel, we pursue it. And then in Acts chapter 11, look at verse 19. Those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. So they're kind of getting it, right? God has brought a persecution. They're scattered out. They're forced to leave Jerusalem because they're trying to flee persecution. So that's good. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, they're getting to the ends of the earth. Thumbs up. But who are they telling the message to? Only the Jews. They're still trying to figure it out. Some of them, however, verse 20, not everybody was doing this. Some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now in that place in Antioch, look at verse 26. For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And this is fascinating. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So here's a church that now is starting to say, what do we do with the community around us? This gospel is not just for us, it's for everyone who's gathered, including the Greeks. And what's interesting, in Acts 13, we get a glimpse of what the leadership of that church was like. Eric read this earlier. In the church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, 
and Saul. That's pretty fascinating. Simon, called Niger, was from Niger in sub-Saharan West Africa. Lucius from Cyrene was from the northern coast of Africa, that's Libya today. Menaean was Palestinian, Judea, Galilee. Barnabas, Cyprus in the Mediterranean, and Paul was from Tarsus in Asia Minor. Two Africans, one Mediterranean, and one from the Middle East, and one from Asia Minor. That was the leadership team of, of the Church of Antioch. It's a multi-ethnic leadership team gathered together because that's where they were and they started taking this message beyond the scope of what was safe and comfortable for them because that's what God's Spirit came to send them to do. And there was a lot of suffering involved in that. There's a lot of hardship, not just outside, but inside as well. And yet Paul and these are committed to extending that gospel. We already looked at Acts chapter 15 because as people start responding to the gospel, there's different customs, and they had to say, which of these cultural customs are just Jewish? And which of these are things that God wants us always to do? Do, do people who are becoming Jews need to be circumcised, for example, like we who are Jews? And they're discussing this, and they get to the heart of the gospel, and they say, as we read earlier, that the heart of the gospel is this. It's not whether you're circumcised or not. We believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. That's how we are saved. This circumcision thing's a picture of something that's happening. But it's not the actual thing that's happening. Your circumcision, your baptism, that's not what saves you. Only faith in Christ alone. And that message is universal. It doesn't matter. We put a lot of trappings around it because it makes us feel comfortable. And sometimes they can be good things. But one of the beauties sometimes I've experienced of being in relationships across cultures is they can begin to show you what you're attaching to that's not actually the gospel. It's just something that you're comfortable with. And so when we're pressed in, in, in this is, you know, I'm, I'm a, a white Westerner. I mean, I, I have limitations. I can only be who I am. So this is, you know, I've had people from the past uh, come in, and if maybe you're of the majority culture, you might say, this church looks, you know, diverse some days more than others. Like, you know, it's, it can be colorful. But anybody who is a person of color comes in and says, this is a white church. It is. You've got white leadership from, from up front. And I can only be who I am. You can be only who I am. So let's learn from, and, and part of the beauty of it is, is finding ways to make sure that those people have voices and we do the best we can to demonstrate that reality as we go along the way. It's a learning curve. And so with humility we pursue this, but we make it a core value because we want that voice in places of making decisions and up front as best as we possibly can. And that's not for the sake of what's culturally cool. It's for the sake of the church, for the sake of the gospel, and the sake of the world. And we see that in, in Acts chapter 15, the basis of all this is the loving, leveling ground of our sin and the grace of Christ. So Paul, he goes back out. Other people join him. And, and in Acts chapter 16, as he, he begins uh, this, this next journey of church planting, you read about this conversion of Lydia. In Philippi, she was a dealer in purple. She was wealthy. 
And in that same city, there's a slave girl who'd been uh, taken over by people who were using her for profit, and she was filled with demons, and she's delivered. And then there's a jailer, a Philippian jailer, a working, uh, you know, class man who pulled the night shift. And the church prays, and they're gone, and he's like, I'm going to lose my job. But he hears the gospel, responds, and in that church meeting in Lydia's house then, you've got this wealthy woman, this poor slave girl, and this working blue-collar man. One of the very first churches that Paul had planted there in Philippians. And you can see they struggle with unity. Read the book of Philippians later. And he had to press them on their attitude being the same of Christ, laying down their own preferences for the sake of someone else. It's hard work, but it's worth it for the sake of the church and for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. And Paul continues planting churches. We already looked at Acts 17 when he goes into Athens and this theology of place and time. And he goes to, to Corinth and, uh, and these other people from different influences come and he begins equipping them. He ends up in Ephesus. You know, he wrote the book of Ephesians and he stays in Ephesus for quite a while in Acts chapter 19. And he spends a lot of time focusing on that church. And, and if you turn over into chapter 20 as he's Leaving to depart in verse 18, when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks both Jews and Greeks, that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus. You know, Paul, what was Paul talking? He spent his whole time, shared the whole counsel of God with them. So if you read the book of Ephesians, you can read it with that backdrop in mind as well. Uh, if you turn to Ephesians, one of the things that he mentions there is the mystery of the gospel. And he talks about what that mystery is in Ephesians 3, 6. This mystery that he spent a lot of time explaining to those people years in Ephesus. This mystery, what is the mystery? That through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Members together of one body. And sharers together in the promise of Jesus Christ. That's the mystery that's been revealed through all the ages. Gentiles included together. This is written to a church in the context of a local church. And in, in chapter in verse chapter 4 and on, he goes talking about what that sort of looks like. If you flip back to chapter 2, he reminds those who are actually Gentiles of what their state was. But now he says in verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, the beautiful body of Christ, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility, reconciliation with God and reconciliation with man. He came and preached peace to those 
to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. There's that Trinitarian language again, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit coming together under the banner of Christ. You know, we tend to idolize our own cultures and preferences. Uh, perhaps we believe someone else's value before God is based, based on ethnicity. The church has made that clear to people before. That's wrong. It's not. And we may still stress distinctions to demonstrate superiority, perhaps even in the church. We're reformed. Therefore, we are God's chosen who have arrived. Right? That's, that's not accurate. We're homeschoolers. We're more tolerant than you are. We might assign moral significance to preferences. You are the frozen chosen, people. I mean, my goodness. It's probably just as well, because if you start moving, it's not on beat anyway. Or someone who's expressive. I remember in seminary, um, some Africans uh, come from, from Africa coming and worshiping up front in a way that was very normal for them. And one person got up and walked out disgusted with what he saw. They were dancing. <gasps> right? He thought that was wrong. He was disgusted with that. This is somebody who's pastoring a church today. It's hard work this side of heaven. Like attracts like. Music, food, style of communication, language, they can all be barriers. We're comfortable gathering with others like us, even if it's just for short bursts. You know, reading groups or football games. But to fellowship on a deep level and to enter into significant relationships with people fundamentally different in sensibilities, that's hard. But it, worth, it was worth enough for Christ to die on the cross for. I mean, that's what he said. I abolish the regulation so that there is no more barrier to create one new man, one man in Christ. Sinners united by grace. The homogenous unit we need is Christ. And our cultural identity is an important part of who we are. But at the end of the day, we are united under him. We don't dismiss that. But it isn't central. And not only do we grow most in the midst of things that are hard and messy, we're missing out on the picture that God is planting and painting in the splendor of his bride. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And that's why it's a core value of ours. While raising support for this church, I had, you know, at least one person unfriend me uh, based on the vision. And I'm, I'm pretty sure, as best I can tell, he thought it was okay if it was the nations, but it didn't include black people. This is somebody from the Deep South. person I went to seminary with. It's, there's a real battle here, too. And one of the reasons that we want to make it central is I think the Bible makes it clear. The beauty of the gospel is best demonstrated in the context of the local church. Sacrificial relationships of love over time that lay down preferences for the sake of the gospel. I bet a lot of people believe that's true. But doing it is really hard. It's super hard, especially if you're in the minority culture, frankly. You're already used to dying of preferences. I'm saying, come die more. But isn't that what we're all supposed to be doing? Dying to self, 
Christ must become more. We must become less. We have a great opportunity to practice that. And we're never going to reach this vision really until heaven. That doesn't mean we don't strive for it. That doesn't mean we can't see the winds along the way. And even looking back, I see the stumbling and, and the failings. There'll be more to come to. But in the glimpses of the beauty of people who recognize this reality and live it out. Of, you know, I shared this story a few weeks ago. I mean, for me, it's striking. A, a, man, a man who had told me in confidence beforehand, I'm not sure I can take communion because my heart is prejudiced against the color of hands that just handed me the communion bread. I said, great, you need to keep coming and repent of that. And we had conversations. There was, you know, a, a long story involved in it. And some of you know that uh, that particular man stood up in tears and repented of his sin, of racism in his heart, and embraced every person of color. Eh, you know, many, but it was, it was amazing to me that the humility and the evidence of the reality of the gospel, if there were non-believers present, that moment, perhaps, above all others, more than anything else, would signify Christ is real. That's not something that people do without a divine reality working in lives and bringing about humility and repentance. It just isn't going to happen. So I want to spend myself on an effort like that. And I feel spent sometimes, to be honest with you. It's hard. There's a lot of misunderstandings and miscommunications and labels. Even if you put ethnically diverse, you're like, is that a political agenda? The diversity? It's not a corporate agenda. It's the gospel. It's for the sake of the gospel. It's for the sake of the church. It's for the sake of the world. That's why we're pursuing this. And I want you to keep joining and realize we're going to make mistakes. That's an opportunity not to lightly treat forgiveness, but to say, yeah, brother, you heard me. Or you're blind. Well, help me see. Help me understand. That's the posture of our hearts that we want. And see, it's easy to pull away from that. And I want to remind you, those in the majority culture, again, you are an ethnicity. We want you here. Just because you're white doesn't mean you're excluded. Our, our presumption is that we want whoever God brings here to come, but we're going to be intentional as best as we can to create an environment where that is not just a theory, but a practice. And we can spend a whole bunch of time talking about what that looks like. Two, and we're, we're intentional as best as we can about it. But I hope you see that we're not just doing this because it's a buzzword thing or anything like that. God has placed us here in a place where the nations have come. And the local church, we believe, is a place where they can find, where we can together learn and grow. And I need them perhaps more than they need me. I'm not the Savior. Only Christ is. And Peter and, and Paul, they put a lot of labor into making sure that we all understood that. So if you ask, why multi-ethnic? Why, why is it a core value that we are pursuing that? I hope you understand why <laughs> this morning. That's important to us. Christ-centered, community-rich, but also ethnically diverse. Father, I pray that you would... Allow us to chase this vision with the energy and with humility, with vigor, 
with perseverance, with joy, and also embracing the hard times that come. We can't do that in our own strength. It's just not possible. So as we'll see uh, soon, we need your Holy Spirit to do this work. The Holy Spirit is involved in a lot of these passages that we read. When he shows up and affirms and empowers this gospel to do what it was intended to do, according to Christ when he rose from the dead, he said, as God has sent me, so I am sending you. And he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. That's why we believe this is a spiritual work of your doing. And we pray that you would empower us to do that uh, and to be mission-minded as we'll look next week in all that we do. Thank you, Father, for bringing everyone here into this community at large, but also this community we call Redeemer Church. May you do with this body of believers what you will for your glory and do it, we pray, for the sake of the world around us, for the sake of the gospel itself, and for the sake of your bride, the church. And pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.